Hey Steve. What? Hey Steve, guess what month it is? Um, um, guess what month it is? Guess what month it is? It's October. It's Spooky October! All right. I'm so excited! Anybody that has listened to the podcast for more than five seconds knows that I am all about all things spooky and horrific and weird, and October is my jam. I come alive during October. And who are you? Uh, oh, yeah, I'm Kim. <laughs> and I'm Steve. Yeah, and um, I actually want to, right off the bat, I'm, I'm doing something new this year that I've never done before that I've always kind of wanted to do, and it's 2020, it's a pandemic, y'all are stuck inside anyway, so why not? Um, I shared a link, or sh- kind of, sh- not a link, but I shared some information on our Instagram page. Um, if you would like to join me, I am watching 31 days of horror movies uh, during the month of October. Um, Like we've talked about before, I don't have a Facebook, but I do have an Instagram. You can find me at KimHarmon04 and follow me on Instagram. Um, And every day I will be posting the movie that I'm watching. I would love it if you guys would watch along and we can, um, you know, you can leave a comment. We can talk about it. Or if you just want to follow the hashtag 31DOH, that's a little easier to remember. Um, 31 Days of Horror. I would love for you guys to be a part of it, so please check it out. Welcome to Jumanji Level 10. Right? We have made it to October. Just a few more months left, hopefully. Hopefully, that's correct. Hopefully 2021 will be better than 2020, although I'm afraid of going out of the frying pan and into the fire. The memes are out of control about all this right Uh, now. And we've got, like, this, whatever that thing that was supposed to be a debate was the other day, just a bunch of people yelling at each other. Um, so that was interesting, too. It's just the icing on the cake of a, a great year so far. 2020. But Weird. I am excited about tonight's show. It's a guy that we all have heard of, but maybe a lot of people don't know about him. Yeah. I So we when we decided to do Spooky October again, which we're going to always do Spooky October, um we kind of really thought about what do we want to do? Uh, you know, what is horrific and what is scary? One of the th- things... Or just out there. Or, yeah, kind of weird. One of the things that horrify me... I, I don't even want to say horrify, but that just makes me super uncomfortable. Seagulls. Those do horrify me. I'm terrified of seagulls. But what just makes me uncomfortable and just kind of makes my skin crawl a little bit is me- magicians. Like, I just don't like them, and I never have. Well, this guy is not really a magician. He was an illusionist and an escape artist. Escape artist I'm okay with. Illusionist, I just don't. I I think it's a trust thing. Like, I don't trust what I can't make sense of with my eyes. I can't see that the world is around, so therefore it is flat. Well, okay. But I can see that the world is round. Like, there are things that enable me to understand that the world... I don't know. I'm not explaining it very well, but magicians just kind of freak me out, and I don't like them. So who are we talking about tonight? We are talking about world-famous Harry Houdini. And we're talking about him for a variety of reasons, not just because he was a magician, um, but we'll get into it a little bit more, too. Illusionist and escape artist. (laughs) Okay. Um... We'll get into it a little bit too. Uh, his ties to spiritualism and in the world of mediums and and 
quote unquote psychic abilities. So we're going to talk about that a little bit ties, too. It's not like he was, but we'll get no, no, into no. that. No, no, we'll get into it. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get into that. So Harry Houdini was popular not in this century, but in the last century. He kind of really got his starts back eh, like 1899, but so, it's so like, close. Yeah, last say, so, and previous. So it's, it's about 100 years ago is when we're talking about yeah. when he was popular. And if you will stay through the show, we're going to have a treat for you, but I'll talk about that more in a minute. Yeah. So, no tricks this time, just yeah. treats. Not a lot of performers have ever captured the, well, should we just dig into it? I think or do you, you have anything else to. you need to go? Okay. Um, no, no. Okay. I think my stuff can wait for okay. during the show. Okay, so like I said, not a lot of uh, performers, artists have ever captured the public imagination like Harry Houdini back in his day. And again, we're talking right now. He got to start in 1899 until his death in 1926. Which is another story in and of itself. Yeah. Houdini was one of the world's most popular entertainers of his day. Now, right, like we said, right now, you know, maybe not a lot of people have heard about him, but you know, we've all heard the, ter- the, the term Houdini, but you may not know a lot about him. But back in the day, he was as big as any of the popular artists that we have mm-hmm. entertaining right now. He was a true star of the stage and screen. So many times his escapes for what seemed like impossible predicaments thrilled audience, audiences who found in him a metaphor of their own lies, an affirmation of human capacity to overcome adversity. Now, that's a quote right there from our source. But don't forget what's going on at this time and what he lived through. So this generation that he is entertaining, they endured World War I, the Spanish flu Mm -hmm. pandemic of 1918, and we've talked about the Spanish flu. So if you want to learn about that, go back and listen to that episode. Mm -hmm. Um, But the escapism in both senses of the word, but while nearly everyone is familiar with Houdini's stage persona, little is really known about his personal life, and that's just as interesting. There there was a lot more to Houdini than him breaking out of handcuffs. There was a lot more to this guy, and we hope we'll be able to touch on that. And just that's the purpose of a show, to give you a little bit more information, stuff that you may have not have known. You know, yeah, man, it's back there in the back of your mind. But we're going to give you a little bit more information about Harry Houdini. Mm-hmm. And if you st- and I alluded to this already. If you stick with us to the end of this episode, we have the only known existing recording of his actual voice. And I'll talk about that. So you have to really stick around to the end of the show and listen to it. Yeah. Harry Houdini loved America so much that he always claimed Appleton, Wisconsin as his birthplace. Because, and that sounds so wholesome too. Like, I'm from Appleton, Wisconsin. Appleton. I wonder if you knew Johnny Appleseed. I don't know, but it actually, doesn't Johnny it sound Appleseed wholesome. Then. Yeah, it does. But Harry was actually born Eric Weiss in Budapest, Hungary. Mm-hmm. Um, he wouldn't arrive in Wisconsin until four years after his birth when his mother, Cecilia, and four brothers joined his father, who had become a rabbi of a small reform congregation there in in uh, Wisconsin. Although his father was a, a fairly well-educated man, Herman Mayer Weiss, his, his original name was Weitz. That was changed to Weiss, courtesy of immigration officials. And I imagine... Thank you, immigration. I imagine he came through Ellis Island. And um, Harry's dad was not going to see a lot of success in America. But his lifelong struggle to provide for his family would make a lasting impression on his son, Erie, 
who was forced to work from an early age to help make ends meet. So little Eric Weiss uh, was drawn to performing. Um, He made his debut in a neighborhood circus at the ripe old age of nine. Uh, He was a trapeze artist called Eric the Prince of the Air. Uh, and then Woo-hoo. it, I know, right? Can you imagine a nine-year-old trapeze artist? I don't. Okay. Yep. Um, <laughs> he was probably. I don't know. It's it's interesting. I'm sure there was a lot of gymnastics involved, and the fact that he started out young as a trapeze artist, I'm sure, helped him a lot as he would get older. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, eventually he would go on to be a sideshow performer, and I have a little bit of information about that later, Bob. Um, In 1887, after a series of failed rabbinic appointments in the Midwest, Herman Mayer Weiss brought a young Eric with him to New York, where they lived in a boarding house and found what work they could. And while he wasn't working, um, he excelled in sports. Eric did. He was a very athletic guy. I mean, obviously. Um, He was really good at swimming and boxing and running, which uh, allowed him to develop those natural athletic gifts that are going to be really important to his future act. So it all kind of came together. You know, he learned um, kind of by being a trapeze artist at such a young age, he kind of learned, I would think, um, his body and how it fits in space, um, which would help him with you know, the, the athleticism as he get got older and then with his illusions and escapes as he got even older than that. Um, he also rediscovered a childhood interest in magic. And in 1891, he teamed up with a friend named Jacob Hyman in an act they called the brothers Houdini. Now he named himself after French magician, Jean Eugene Robert Houdin. Because yeah, that again, Jean Eugene Robert Houdin. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, At some point, Eric had heard that if you just added an I to a French word, it meant student of. So Houdin, you add an I, becomes Houdini, student of Houdin, um, who was a French magician who Eric really looked up to. Um, Now, after uh, Hermann died in 1892, 18-year-old Eric left his mother and his brothers in New York, and he took to the road. So the brothers Houdini performed their act, which wasn't really anything special. It was card tricks and other like small magic tricks. Pulling a rabbit out of the hat. Yeah, that kind of stuff. And dime museums and small theaters throughout upstate New York in the Midwest. Um, and they performed on the Midway of the 1893 World Columbia Exposition in Chicago. So that's kind of cool. Can you imagine that? But getting performed. That was a big deal. That was a big deal, especially so on the Midway. Must have been- like that's. He must have been fairly good at what he was doing to be right. able to get that yeah, set. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then in 1894, his younger brother Dash replaced... Um, Dash? Not our Dash, different okay. Dash. Um, replaced Hyman, but not for long. Because that summer, Harry met and married a fellow performer, a little 18-year... And when I say little, I mean like little in the... Like petite uh, Petite, type. yeah. Um, 18-year-old from Brooklyn named Wilhelmina Beatrice Rahner. Um, and it's actually, I, there's a rumor that she was so poor at this point in time that she sold her virginity to Harry for an orange. Like that's how little money she had. Uh, and of course they later ended up getting married. Um, Bess. And she became the love of his life. She did. 
Um, Except and, for his mother, too. Uh, yeah. Well, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, her, so Wilhelmina uh, Beatrice. Can we just call her Bess? That was the way they called her, Bess. Uh, she became Harry's assistant because, she, like we said, she was really petite, and so she could really easily fit into magical contraptions. <laughs> um, and and <laughs> I, I'm going to say magical contraptions. I know, not magic, illusion, whatever. They're all weird. Uh, and the brothers Houdini simply became the Houdinis. Um, and so they gained some notice with a trunk escape they called the metamorphosis. It, but they weren't making a lot of money. Um, life on the dime museum circuit was really grueling. It was long hours, not knowing, you know, hand to mouth, doing what you could to to survive. Yeah, what you can get for an orange. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, and even though he was barely 25, in 1898, Houdini was so tired of it that he seriously thought about quitting and even sent out a catalog for Harry Houdini's School of Magic while staying with his mom in New York on an extended break. And now I think, like, how cool would it have been to attend Harry Houdini's School of Magic? Just wait. I don't but, like magic, but, but I would have gone to Harry Houdini's School of Magic. But he and his wife, Bess, went back on the road in the spring of 1899. Houdini finally caught his big break. Their lucky streak came when Martin Beck, a rising tycoon in the new world of vaudeville theater, saw the Houdinis in a beer garden in St. Paul, Minnesota. He ignored, Beck ignored the rest of the act, but Beck saw something in Houdini's handcuff handcuff escapes. Man, we got some tongue twisters here. And challenged (laughs) him the next day with his own cuffs. Harry easily escaped the handcuffs, and a few days later, Beck, who was with the Orpheum Circuit, which dominated vaudeville in the West, cabled Houdini from Chicago. The cable read, you can open up Omaha March 20th, 6th, for $60. We'll see, act probably, make you proposition for all next season. So it's kind of broken up because it was a cable. Yeah. As Houdini later wrote, this wire changed my whole life's journey. Yeah, the Orpheum Theater up in Chicago, I, I believe the Orpheum's in Chicago, it was a big deal. Like, that was the premier vaudeville theater, and so to be invited to be the opener at the Orpheum is a, a major step forward. Yeah, well, by the end of the year, Beck had the Houdinis playing in leading vaudeville houses from the Midwest all the way to California. And you got a picture. Vaudeville was the thing back oh, in the day. Yeah. That was entertainment. I mean, we didn't have the internet. <laughs> By early 1900, they were also hit a hit on Keith's East Coast Circuit, displaying a talent for publicity to match his abilities as an escape artist. Houdini performed gel escapes and other public stunts to lure people into theaters. He would deliberately set things up out in public to lure people in before the big show. Mm. And he would often do it in front of newspapers, like newspaper offices, so they would see this, and that would draw their interest, and he would get press. Yeah, he was kind of his own hype man, wasn't yeah, he? he? was. He was really good well, at, they didn't um, have the like, stuff his own like they barker, now. you know, yeah. Houdini was known by a lot of names. Uh, the, the celebrated police baffler, the king of handcuffs, and a host of other names developed the basic routines which would make him a legend. After nearly a 10 years playing dime museums and circuses, vaudeville must have seemed like a whole new world to Harry. Because, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, because You're they had to perform fewer shows, and they performed 
you know, not like out on like the circus in the, dirt. And the streets. Yeah. yeah. So they they were playing to more upscale audiences and really fancy and lavish theaters, and they made a whole lot more money. Yeah, at the turn of the century, vaudeville was it. That was the top of the entertainment pyramid. What would be the equivalent now? I would say, uh, I don't know that there is necessarily. Dancing with equivalent. the Stars? Yeah, like the reality shows. That, uh, yeah, TV. I would say reality TV is similar to vaudeville um, because it was one of those things that there were all kinds of different acts. Um, so you had... Uh, like some vaudeville contained burlesque kind of stuff. And then some of it had, you know, singing and dancing and some of it had. So it was like a big variety show. Yeah, essentially. Um, And so I think, uh, yeah, I would say that probably reality TV is kind of the new vaudeville. Um, And Harry Houdini really quickly became one of its top stars. But. As wonderful as all this was, no amount of success in America, which had barely begun to emerge from Europe, Europe's cultural shadow, could compare with acceptance across the Atlantic. Um, Harry really wanted to be world famous. He had to go. He had to travel. Yeah, and he was already bickering with Beck from the Orpheum. Um, and like the debate? Well, something like that. Yeah. But um, So he arranged his own tour of Europe. And that's where he would spend most of the next five years. Uh, He worked constantly. He was crisscrossing between the continent, the British Isles, um, and everybody in in Europe loved him just like they did in America. Uh, He continued staging public exhibitions and taking challenges, which is something that he did kind of throughout his life. He would say... All right, um, give, tell me what you want me to do. He was a showman. He was a showman. I would argue that he is the greatest showman, probably not Hugh Jackman. Well, he, knew how to, <laughs> he knew how to work the crowds. He and really did. he knew how did. to get the publicity. He absolutely did. Uh, and, but that, um, the, the public challenges uh, is going to be something that's going to follow him for his entire life. Um, and then in Germany... He caused an even bigger stir when he ran up against the Kaiser and the Kaiser's police force. Uh, oh, yeah, a Cologne policeman accused I met, him I met, of. I've met some Pulitzers over there before. Oh, do tell. I will later. <laughs> no, I wasn't in trouble. So, but I had to work with him. Oh, okay. On some things. Oh, well, that's not as exciting. Um, a Cologne policeman accused him of fraud. Just at- say the Pulitzers do things a lot differently. Their police work. <laughs> is a lot different than how we do it in the United States. Enough said on that. Okay. Um, and when the, the cop said that, you, you know, you're a cheater, you're a fraud, Houdini charged him with slander rather than back down. So he stood up to the Pulitzer and said, no, I'm not a fraud, and you are speaking out of turn. Um, and so even though he had to reveal some of his tricks to the court in order to win, the resulting windfall of publicity only reinforced his status as Germany's König der Handschellen, which is, of course, King of Handcuffs. All righty. So, after making his name well known, do you want me to tell you the story? I would love My to hear the story. My best story. Okay, sure. we, we're going to have to get off Houdini for one second. That's okay. We have So, time. at one place that I was stationed in Germany, there were protests outside the gates of our concern. And, of course, the U.S. commander was. All up, you know, we've got to get all these people here. We have to have all this equipment and stuff like that. And we had the local Pulitzer commander there, the chief of police. 
for that district, for that region, for that city, whatever. And uh, the, the colonel said, well, how many do you have? He said, we have, we have 10 men. And the colonel was like, you have 10 men? There's like 670 protesters, 700 protesters out there. How do you do that? And the chief said, we don't do things like you do in America. We will form in a wedge. And the pull side, they carry these little nightsticks that they're kind of like rubbery, so like they can slap you and they'll like wrap around. Ooh. Yeah. They, they don't do like we do here in the United States. So it's a different culture. So just take it for what it is. But the chief said, we will form in a wedge and we make a beeline for the leader. We catch up to the leader. Basically, we beat the snot out of the leader. And he hmm. goes, that typically will disperse the crowd. So I guess that makes sense. I mean, you take out the leader unless you have like a very strong second in command or, you know, kind of somebody else. Well, that, he well, said they had a lot of experience in this. So it, he said that's what they it, do. Did it work? It didn't have to. Oh, it, was, okay. it was a very peaceful protest. Oh, well, that's good. Okay. So after making his name well known in Europe, <laughs> Houdini came back to America in 1905 and put down some roots. He bought a small farm in Connecticut and a stately brownstone in Manhattan. Although being an entertainer meant he was always on the road, the brownstone became home base for his family, particularly his beloved mother, Cecilia Weiss. Houdini had always been close to his mother, but since his father's death, his devotion became even stronger devotion, and you could only compare it, rivaled only by his love for his wife, Bess. When word of her, he was in Sweden when he found out that she had passed away, and it was in 1913. It was reported that he fainted and then wept uncontrollably when controllably when he came to. He said, "I am what would be called a mother's boy." Admitted mm. the man hailed around the world as a real life Superman. There's he, nothing wrong with being a mama's boy. He would grieve for the rest of his life for his mother. This devotion, along with a fierce desire to succeed as his father never had led Houdini to drive himself relentlessly and helps account for his incredible career. When others would have retired to enjoy their success, Houdini reinvented himself time and time again, finding new ways to maintain his public appeal. And that's what we were just talking about right there. He was he was the, the master showman. He knew what he was doing, mm-hmm. and he, he knew how to work a crowd. He knew how to to get the attention that's and it's interesting that um you know it's the kind of the way that you phrased this um is that the the fact that his father had never been successful and the legacy that his dead father gave him is what kind of drew him out of the slump from his mother's death yeah um and and kind of lit a fire in him in that uh you know where some some lesser men would have just given up and just wallowed in self-despair and pity. He said, no, I'm going to make something of myself and I'm going to make my parents proud and uh, I'm going to do this. Yeah. It, I mean, he was just that driven of a person. And you know, to be successful, he had to have that drive in there. In 1908, he introduced the famous Milk Can Escape and he would always remind audiences that failure means a drowning death. So the Milk Can Escape basically was he would be sealed, locked inside of a milk can. And, and, and so, he would yeah, escape. so like for those of you who are not old and don't know what a milk can is and have never studied the history of it, we actually have one on our porch, right? Like that's a uh, milk no, can. No, he wouldn't fit in that one. 
No, but it's that's that was a milk can, right? It, it, like, yeah, but this was a bigger big, one made for this. Yeah, yeah, they're big like metal uh, containers. containers. Yeah, yeah, that are sealed tight. Um, so it's not. And he was locked inside of it, and yeah. he would escape. Yeah. And then they would dunk it in water, drop it in water, and he would escape from right this and and swim sealed container was, and get out. Yeah, yeah. And he was a swimmer. Remember that. And he, he was he had trained himself to hold his breath for an incredibly long time. Yeah. Some of his escapes underwater required him to hold his breath for up to three minutes. So he had a lot of control over his body that he trained. Right. So I mean, it wasn't like I know how to bust out of handcuffs. He had to keep himself very physically in tune and in shape to do what he did because it was a very physical act. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Around the same time, he staged a series of manacled bridge jumps, which drew large crowds and a great deal of publicity. So he would go out to a town. They would He would have people handcuff him, shackle him in chains. Then he would jump, jump off, off a bridge. bridge and he would pop back up. Didn't he go? Did he go over Niagara Falls? I don't think he ever barrel? went. Over, I don't think he'd went over I don't Niagara know. Falls. Yeah, okay. I, I didn't. I didn't in the research. I didn't see that. Yeah. In 1913, he added the elaborate Chinese water torture cell escape, which usually referred to as the upside down. So what this was, there was a container, a box filled with water. He would be his feet would be shackled in stocks, and then they would lift him up and dunk him face down in this the Chinese water torture cell, and he would escape from that. He must have had some crazy abs. Yeah, he, he did. And that was one of his points of pride. And we'll get to that later because that eventually led to yeah, his death. he didn't have a six-pack. He had like a 12-pack. Some <laughs> consider it Houdini's greatest trick, and it certainly had all the elements of a Houdini performance. Brilliant technical conception, great physical strength, in a highly dramatic presentation, and he was all about the show. I wonder if Houdini had strings with him. Like, I wonder if he just had a like a cello that just traveled with him and played suspenseful music the entire and, time. Oh, now he just Bluetooth it. Yeah, I would. I would hire a cello, or you know, I would assume. I music. think it's a cello is what I would hire. Just dramatic stringed instruments to follow me around. Pads, right? Yeah. yeah. During his career, Houdini explained some of his tricks in books written for the Magic Brotherhood. Um, which is kind of a big no-no. Like you're not supposed to tell your tricks. So I guess that's why some of his he, tricks. I bet he didn't let them. the good stuff out. Oh, I'm sure. And again, you know, he was not. He was he was an illusionist um, and an escape artist. And I don't know that there's necessarily rules for them. It's just the, the Magic Brotherhood. Um, but in 1909, uh, he wrote Handcuff Secrets, and he revealed how a lot of locks and handcuffs could actually be opened with properly applied force, and others with something as simple as a shoestring, um, which I would love to read that and find out how to pick a lock with a shoestring. Um, other times, he con- uh, carried concealed lock picks or keys, and when he was tied down in ropes or straight jackets, he gained wiggle room by enlarging his shoulders and chest and moving his arms slightly away from his body. And this goes back to kind of what I was saying earlier with the trapeze stuff is learning exactly how big he is and how he fits in space um, and how like how his body moves in space. That's going to help him with these straight jackets to know how much room does he need to expand and compress. I also read that he was slightly bow-legged, which enabled him to create a little extra space for oh, the yeah. room. Yeah. 
his straight, straight jacket escape was originally performed behind curtains with him popping out free at the end. But his brother, who was also an escape artist, who billed himself as Theodore Hardeen. I, I wonder if little boys, they would tie <clears throat> each other up and... Oh, you know they would. Yeah. And they probably got in trouble, too, because they were not escape artists. Um, so Houdini's brother discovered that audiences were actually more impressed when the curtains were eliminated so they could watch the struggle. They could watch him try to get out. Um, and so on more than one occasion, they both performed straight jacket escapes while dangling upside down from the roof of a building in the same city. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, could you imagine? Like, first of all, you... Uh, I wonder what that was like, too, if there was sibling rivalry, like, which one of us can get out of the straight jacket first? Oh, I bet. And of the top of this... Because they seem like very competitive people. Really super tall building. Yeah. And, you know, we never really heard about Theodore, his brother. No? No. No, because... I, well, I really so apparently... Eric was the one who got out first all the time. Yeah, so maybe so. One of Houdini's most notable non-escape stage illusions was performed at the New York Hippodrome, where he vanished a full-grown elephant from the stage. Now, that I would like to have seen. I don't like these. I don't like these things. So I went with my aunt one year when I was a little kid to go see. Um, Who made an elephant disappear? I know. I don't like it. I This is what I don't like about magic. I don't like that. Like, I have less of a problem with card tricks and stuff because I know that there's an easy explanation for that. But how do you just make an elephant disappear? Read that book. I don't like it. I went to go see David Copperfield with my aunt when I was a kid. David, like the illusionist magician, David Copperfield, and I just, it, I don't, I don't have a good memory of it. Like she was in awe and ooh and ah and wowed, and I was just like, this, um, I don't like this. Well, he learned how weird. to. He learned how to make that full-grown elephant vanish from the stage because he purchased this trick from the magician known as Charles Morritt. Oh, that's so interesting. Morritt really figured it out. And so Houdini paid him money to make this happen. I never really thought about that, that magicians like sell their tricks to each other. I wonder if they're trademarked. I wonder if tricks are I bet they are. It wouldn't surprise me or copyrighted. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I never thought about that. In 1923, Houdini became president of Martinka and Company, America's oldest magic company. And like we said at the beginning... This business, you know, when you were asking about how I would like to learn or see this, yeah. that business is still in operation today. Well. Google it up and look it up. Martinka and company, uh, if you are listening and would like to send me some stuff to make me slightly less freaked out by magicians and illusionists, I will gladly I mean, uh, I would like to, I would like have to, to say. I would like to perform an illusion, like just make Jack or Rupert disappear. That, no, uh, you th- don't make Rupert disappear. They're not really going to go anywhere. They're just, it's an illusion. Can we make Jack disappear when he's obnoxiously barking at the door to go outside every yes. five minutes? Yes. Yeah. Deal. Uh, so in 1904, the London Daily Mirror newspaper challenged Houdini to an escape from special handcuffs that it claimed had taken Nathaniel Hart, who was a locksmith from Birmingham, five years to make. So these were some special handcuffs. Yeah, this handcuffs. story is insane. Houdini... Being Houdini accepted the challenge for March 17th during a matinee performance at London's Hippodrome Theater. So this is St. I wonder if this is St. Patrick's Day. So I wonder if St. Patrick's Day in 1904 is like St. Patrick's Day now where like everybody drinks and like... I don't know. Probably not. It was reported that 4,000 people and more than 100 journalists turned out 
for this much type event. So you know he was popular. He was well known. Oh yeah, a hundred thousand people and a hundred yeah. journalists came there. It's a lot of people. Yeah, the escape attempt dragged on for over an hour and a half, during which Houdini emerged from his ghost house, which was a small screen used to conceal the method of escape several times. So he popped out several times, probably to catch his breath or just to see what was going on. At one point, <laughs> he asked if the cuffs could be removed so he could take off his coat. The mirror representative, Frank Parker, refused, saying Houdini could gain an advantage if he saw how the cuffs were unlocked. So this is the most, so like... Houdini promptly took out a pen knife and, holding it, the knife in his teeth, used it to cut his coat from his body. That is some hard dedication right yeah. there. Some, I'm sure you could afford it. Some, yeah, but even so. <laughs> some 56 minutes, minutes later, Houdini's wife, Bess, appeared on stage and gave him a kiss, a, a kiss of encouragement. Now, many people thought that in her mouth was the key to unlock the special handcuffs. However, it, um, it has since been suggested that Best did not, in fact, enter the stage at all, and all that this theory is unlikely to do because the size of the key was a six-inch six key. And she now, was a little, a little lady. Yeah, and there's other, other, other stories I read, but I just didn't include it in here, that at some point they brought out a glass of water for him to drink and they maybe hid the key in the glass of water. But again, it was a six inch key. So, yeah. But he was, lo- I mean, he made a whole elephant disappear. So, bunch maybe, of haters. Yeah. Houdini then went back behind the curtain. After an hour and 10 minutes, Houdini emerged free. Uh, and he was paraded on the shoulders of the cheering crowd. He broke down and wept. Houdini later said it was the most difficult escape of his career. But he did it. He did it. So I... Never give up. No, right. I mean, so the whole thing lasted, what, like two hours? Yeah, a a long time, yeah. At least. Um, So, yeah. So good on you, Harry Houdini. Now, after almost three decades of public performances, Houdini eventually found a new and powerful way to reach people... The motion picture. Um, he made his first film, which was a serial called The Master Mystery in 1918, just as the movie business was about to take off. And even though his acting was really not that great and screen magic didn't have any of the mystery of live magic, Houdini was famous. And so he became one of Hollywood's first action heroes. And his- you know what? That's like we were talking about the other day. It's that- like right now we're used to when we on Sunday when we were doing the music. Yeah. When, oh, we, yeah. when we would do it live, we would go through and do the entire set live. But when we had to, because of COVID, had to start recording stuff, it might take us five takes to get through one song yeah, or whatever. You, you do lose something in translation. That's why maybe a lot the of the- Maybe adrenaline t- or whatever. Maybe a lot of times- um, you Live know, is easier than recording. Well, there is something about the interaction, I think. I think, and honestly, I think that's what it is. It's There's an energy give and take between the crowd and the performer um, that you don't get with film a lot of the time. It's one thing to talk to a crowd. It's another thing to talk to a camera. Right, exactly. And, And I think audiences, when you're watching movies, I think audiences get that because you're having a shared experience, but the act, I mean, you're not getting anything as an actor out of it because you're not having that. There is a give and take that comes with performing for a crowd. Um, but, uh, so, but people loved him. Let's get back on topic. Yeah. People (laughs) loved him. Um, and his movies were made delights of audiences all over the world. 
But by now, he's in his mid-40s. So remember, he started as a trapeze artist at nine. So he's been doing physically demanding work his entire life. And now he's in his mid-40s. He's physically worn out. Um, and he was thrilled to be able to perform an escape once and have it preserved forever. Um, you can watch it time and time and time again. As many times as you want to watch it, except, I only have to do it once. Except now with CGI, like I always say, oh, when I saw that lion cub talking, I don't believe anything I see on but TV or But there was no anymore. CGI back then. So no you, you watch it. He's like, I got to do this once and I'm one and done. Over it. Um, so in typical fashion, Houdini jumped into the new medium with both feet. Uh, he wasn't content just being a star, so he started his own production company and several other movie-related ventures all of which lost money. Um, he taught himself to speak advanced elocutionary English and to write in really kind of like showman-like, barker-like tones. Um, and sometimes he would use a ghostwriter, but he also composed or dictated stories about himself. Uh, and he proclaimed his own greatness in leaflets and flyers and books and pamphlets. He promoted himself. He did. I he was didn't a have great, advertising companies He was a like great hype man. Um, and he did appear in a few silent movies in the 1910s and 20s, um, even though, like we said, he was a terrible actor. His look, performances seen, were really wooden and just not a lot of... I've seen some of those movies. They all look like that. Well, so if they all look like that and Houdini was bad at it, then <laughs> how know. terrible must okay. he really have been? Touche. You went on that one. Um, so in Houdini... A large-scale Hollywood version of his life from 1953, Tony Curtis, who was also of Hungarian-Jewish parentage, gave Houdini a quick-moving grace and an ingenious charm. Uh, so, you know, it that's great that somebody else who was more skilled at performing was able to kind of save his acting career. <laughs> um, another great passion of Houdini's emerged in the early... That's a leap. Yeah, I was. Yeah, okay. So, okay. yeah, we're going to completely switch gears and get back to the spooky version of Houdini and the spooky part of Spooky October. Um, another great passion of his emerged in the early 20s when he became a leading critic of the spiritualist movement that was sweeping across Europe and America in the wake of World War One. Tell me about the spiritualist. Yeah, I think a, spiritualism. I think um, a lot of people think that they know spiritualism, um, but it it may not necessarily be what you think it is. It's actually considered a religious movement, um, and spiritualism is based on the belief that not only do the spirits of the dead exist, but they actually want to communicate with the living. Um, and so spiritualists believed that the afterlife or spirit world is a place in which those spirits continue to evolve. So it wasn't just like a place that you go and you're there and you're the same forever. Um, they believed that the dead are capable of providing useful knowledge about moral and ethical issues and the nature of God. Um, so that would lead uh, spiritualists to rely on spirit guides uh, who were essentially specific dead people to answer their questions. Did this trace back to like Native American or their origins with Native American? Because that kind of sounds like um, Native Americans calling on the... Yeah, I think that's a tradition in a lot of different cultures. Um, so some of it was Native American. Some of it is um, African. So Are you making this up or is this what you know? Huh? Are you making this up or is this what you know? No, I know this. Okay. Um, so I think spiritualism borrows from a lot of different cultures, even Hindu cultures. Like some contemporary spiritualists believe um, in reincarnation. Um, so it, I think it is a truly um, 
great melting pot American thing that, you know, they, they borrowed f- the, the concepts are found in all cultures all over the world of being able to commune with the dead and the dead being able to give insight and wisdom. Um, and it's interesting too, that a lot of spiritualists were female. Um, so a lot of spirit guides were, um, and, and I mentioned Africa especially too, because a lot of spirit guides would promote abolitionism. Um, so I wonder how many spiritualists were former slaves or children of slaves. Uh, and, um, you know, a lot of spirit guides would also promote women's rights. Um, interestingly, a lot of the spiritual mediums who communed with these spirit guides were women. So, uh, you know, do it that way you will. So was this big because... You know, just coming out of World War One, were a lot of people trying to communicate with their loved yeah, ones. Yeah, I think they. Killed? Yeah, I think that a lot of them were. I mean, there's a lot going on. The so, Spanish flu too. Yeah, the Spanish flu. A lot of people died. A this lot time of people died, and I think it's just one of those things that people were just trying to make sense of the world around them. Um, the world as a whole was just spiraling out of control. And, you know, we had the Spanish flu and all of the deaths from that. We had World War One and all of the deaths from that. We had, um, I mean, it was in the early 20s, so we kind of had the roaring 20s starting up, but it wouldn't be long until, you know, we had some financial collapse too. And so it was this kind of weird, weird time in American history where we're coming, It it's, and we've covered that on a couple of yeah. episodes, yeah. We're coming out of like a really dark time and we're hoping I think I think that is a good part of it is it was built on hope. Like you want to believe that things are going to get better and I really do think that um that hope that spiritualism is kind of linked to gave birth to um sort of the Harlem Renaissance and the Jazz Age and all of the like the free-spirited 20s that grew out of that that sadness and desperation and and ugliness that was the 1910s. Um, but anyway, so that's a little bit about the background of spiritualism. Um, Houdini was was um, not really formally educated, and so maybe it's because he was embarrassed by that. But he worked really hard always to educate himself. And his wait a minute, what would he do? He did his research. He did his and research educated and educated himself. himself. Yes, our motto. Huh. Uh, and his great passion was the history of magic, and he got he he managed to collect one of the greatest collections of material like that in the world. So he really wanted to learn and do his research and educate himself. Um, and so he kind of took issue with the spiritualist movement. Yeah. So when spiritualist mediums mediums gained considerable attention by claiming to be in touch with the spirit world the world's most famous illusionist felt kind of compelled, that being Harry Houdini, to go out and expose them, to reveal them for what they were, highly skilled performers, kind of like himself right here. Yeah, and I'm going to interrupt you one last time. Well, probably not one last time, but I'm going to interrupt you again. It will not be the last time. Um, But I I neglected to point it out that spiritualist mediums are the people, it's exactly what it sounds like. They are a medium- space between the living and the dead. Um, They claimed to have special powers that only they could hear and see and speak with the dead. Um, You know, they would invite, obviously we've heard of seances, which is how they communicated with the dead a lot. 
Um, they would, we now have Parker Brothers has the Ouija or Hasbro or whoever it is has their Ouija board. Um, the spiritualist mediums had their own version uh, that they would create. And of course they would lead all of these seances and things, but they had to be, they were the ones that understood the spirit world. And so you had to go to them. Yeah. Well, Harry also wanted to communicate with his mother who had passed away, but he knew he knew that spiritualism was a con. Yeah. So he really wanted to expose this because he kind of felt like they were leading people on, giving a lot of people false hope. Um, in the 1890s, both he and Bess had dabbled in it themselves, researching names at local graveyards the night before summoning the dead in public. Um, which, I don't know. That's I have mixed feelings about that. Like, I feel like that's kind of... Uh, isn't dabbled. that preying on he it dabbled. too? Yeah, I he guess. But he was learning. He was doing his research and educating uh, himself. I guess. He took on famous mediums and started lecturing on fraudulent spiritualistic phenomena. Um, and he actually tes- <laughs> he testified before Congress about the spiritualist menace. And I feel like we have all of these menaces. We have the red menace and the red scare and the spiritualist menace and the spiritualist scare. Um, he traveled all over the country and he interrupted seances. Sometimes in disguise, he would wear like a fake beard and a hump uh, and he would shout, I am Houdini. And then he would flip over tables and demand that the lights turned on. Uh, and so tr- he trashed the event for performers and listeners both. Okay, I, I got to pause because we're talking about spiritualism and all this stuff. And last week we talked about spo- social media. Yeah. So if you don't know how we do this, Kim and I, we, we, we prepare our notes on uh, Google Docs, mm-hmm. and then uh, I, I use my iPad, and Kim uses a Chromebook. And across the top of my iPad right now came <gasps> stuff about Harry Houdini that I had not even looked at. It just, it just popped up. Okay. Do-do-do-do. Okay. What so, does it say? I don't even know. What do the what do the spirit guides want us to know about Harry Houdini? I don't know. Did it go away? It went away, <gasps> but but it just it just you know at the top of the iPad it flashed across. Oh, yeah. that's spooky! It is. Okay, it's spooky October. If it comes back, folks, that is the living truth that if, just happened. If right it here. comes back, read it real fast because the spirit guides want us to know. Um. So he would flip over tables. He demanded that the lights be turned on. He would trash the event. And why did he care so much? Um, because he and the spiritualists were both engaged in show business, like you said. So why, you know, why would you do this? They're not coming to your shows and saying that and you're a charlatan. Kim. Yeah. If your uh, relatives can hear me, I want them to give me a sign. No, no, don't. Oh my gosh. If you summon my grandma, she's never going to shut up. So you, you better watch what you do. Um, okay. So, but the spiritualist who Dini thought preyed on the emotions of people in mourning, which is a really good point. I hope uh, that came through. I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. Um, they, you know, Houdini was an illusionist. The spiritualists were illusionists, but Houdini didn't really prey on anybody's emotions, especially not the emotions of sadness and hope, maybe fear, maybe anxiety, anticipation, um, but not, you know, he, he didn't go after victims um, and, and people who are experiencing loss. But at the same time, he may have also seen spiritualism as a covert personal assault, 
Um, because any suggestion of miracles, of God intervening, of spirits getting into the act, took away from the self-generated powers of the great Houdini. So, um, you know, there's a couple of different reasons why Houdini could have been against spiritualism. I tend to think more of, um, just kind of from what I know about Houdini and his character, I tend to think more of it was he saw people being duped and swindled out of their money. And it sounds like he was a pretty genuine guy. Yeah, I, I think it was not so much of these people are upstaging me. I think it was more like you're you're being really shady and taking advantage of people that don't deserve to be taken advantage of. Um, and so... His crusade of anti-spiritualism, which he approached with characteristic passion, led to two particularly revealing episodes. One of these was his friendship with English author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was a leading advocate in spiritualism. You know what he wrote, right? Yeah. What did he write? The Sherlock Holmes. Yes, good. I'm not... Dumb. Quiz time. I know that. Okay. I, I've read. Right. I've okay. actually even read those books, not just yeah, seen really. the movie. Hmm. Although Houdini, no faith in me. Uh, okay. No. <laughs> Although Houdini was eager to remain friends with Sir Arthur, their differing differing views eventually led to a falling out, kind of like today's politics. Hmm. The other episode was his very public battle with the most noted noted medium of the day, Mina Crandon, yeah. aka Marjorie, the wife of a prominent Boston surgeon. As part of a committee organized by Scientific American Magazine, Houdini helped expose Marjorie as a fraud after a series of combative seances. Send me a sign if you are in the room. And they would find out that the meeting was like kicking the table. Like yeah. I was just doing right there. <laughs> yeah. He even published... And other trickery. Yeah. He even published a 40-page page illustrated pamphlet entitled... Houdini exposes the tricks used by the Boston medium Marjorie at his own expense. Which I would like to Google that's that. That's not a real re- catchy title. No, but it tells me what it's about. Yeah, that's true. Um, I'm going to Google that later tonight. All right, cool. As generous as Houdini was with his family and friends, he made an implacable foe. Um, Houdini began. You go using big words at me. It means you couldn't beat him. He's he's like a he's like a bulldog. Like he grabs on Pipple, he grabs on, he's not gonna let go until he exposes you. Uh, and in 1926, he started it out on a high note, reaching the height of success with his own one-man show on Broadway. Um, the two and a half hour Houdini featured a bit of everything that had made him a legend since the Dime Museum days. Um, so he did small scale illusions, card tricks, blockbuster escapes, a spiritualism expose. And the show was such a success that he took it on the road. But then, during a stay in Montreal in October, Houdini was assaulted by a young man in his dressing room. The gut punches that he took from this assault, which had always been used, his gut had always been used as a test of his legendary strength. Like you said, he didn't have a six-pack. He had a 12-pack. Well, and remember earlier we mentioned that he always invited fans like, hey, give me a challenge. Yeah. And so this guy punched him in the gut a couple times. But also, besides the punches, which, you know, maybe he would have been able to take, was aggravated by a case of appendicitis that was going on with him right now. Mm. And Harry soon became very seriously ill. But in Harry Houdini style, the show must go on. In a final show of his stamina and strength and willpower, 
Houdini performed the next day and again in Detroit. So here he is with appendicitis, and he's still performing, giving the audience what they want to do. How much pain he must have been in. His appendix was removed on October 25th, but the delay had allowed infection to set in, and he de- died in Detroit on Halloween. So more of your spooky, spooky yeah. Halloween right here. Headlines bannered across the country, long obituaries, and a crowded public funeral in New York marked Houdini's passing. These were but a few of the signs that the world knew that it lost one of the most original and beloved entertainers of all time. Yeah, so he led quite the life. Um, There are, and there's not a lot out there, I don't think, I don't know, there might be some movies and stuff about him, Um, but you, I'm sure you can find some of Houdini's Houdini's actual movies, if you kind of do some digging and look. I'm sure they're still out there. So in a minute, we're going to give you a a special treat. We do have the only known existing recording of Harry Houdini. It's going to be his actual voice, and it's very difficult to understand. It was recorded on wax, and luckily for us, as I was doing this research, it's public domain. We very much abide by all the copyright laws and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And you will never hear us play any copyrighted music because people need compensated for what they do. Absolutely. But this recording of Harry Houdini is public domain. So here in a couple minutes, I'm going to play that. But right now, we need... You have something, Kim? Um, yeah, I was going to say, if you can understand... Because I listened to it, and it was very... I, it is very hard to understand what he's saying. But it's um, his voice. Yeah, it is his voice. So if and you... it's recorded on wax. If you can understand what he's saying, please write to us at alosthour at gmail.com and tell us what you think Houdini is saying. So before we get to that, Kim and I are going to go on vacation tomorrow morning, mm-hmm. and we're headed to... The upper upper peninsula of Keweenaw. Michigan, Keweenaw, yep. in uh, in Michigan, Copper Harbor. So if mm-hmm. you're up there, and if you happen, because we do have people from Michigan listening, yeah, we don't know where they are, but uh, from everything I've read, I think we missed peak. Well, you, the peak of the leaves, mm-hmm. maybe not. I saw pictures today, but if we do not have a show next week, it's because everything we've read and everything we look like. Uh, internet and cell service Wi-Fi is going to be very, very hard to find. I'm sure we can find it. If we can get AT&T, then I can create a hotspot. But if for some reason we don't have a show next week, it's because we physically can't do it. Yeah, and we will double up the following week. Yeah, we'll you'll we'll, we'll you'll get a special a special treat of two shows at once. Um, but I we will be back in town on Saturday, so we'll be back in civilization. Um, I just worry about being able to do research next week for the, the following show. Yeah, and that's it. If we can't get yeah, Wi-Fi so, or internet, we, yeah. we we can't do it. But we're gonna do our very very best uh, because we. Um, you know, we have a lot of good content coming for you. Um, we have a lot of things, ideas of um, things that we want to do. And so uh, so we, we definitely want to do as much research as we can and present as many shows as we can. Okay, so for right now, let me go ahead and let's let you hear Harry Houdini's actual voice. But before we do that, go ahead and we'll end the show with that. So Tell everybody how they can get hold of us and how they can comment and how they can give us five-star ratings and how the best thing you can do to help our show out is to tell a friend and share us on Facebook and let everybody know so everybody can learn about 
Harry Houdini. Well, you just told him that part, but yes, you can find us on Facebook at an hour of your life. You can find us on Instagram at an hour of your life. Um, you can find us on Twitter at a lost hour. And that is also our Gmail address is a lost hour at gmail.com. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, if you would like to do spooky October with me and do the 31 days of horror, um, you know, I post a picture, uh, every day of what movie I'm watching. You can find me at Kim Harmon zero four, or you can just search the hashtag 31 D O H. Yeah. So with that, if you're going to leave us a rating, leave, leave us a good five one. stars. Yeah. If you're not going to leave five stars, don't, don't bother. bother. Yeah. yeah okay. Fine. So for let's go ahead and let's take a listen to Harry Houdini's actual voice. And thanks for spending an hour of your life with us, by the way. Not to be sacrilegious, but Harry, if you're in the room, make your presence known. Harry Houdini, I 